Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's coming up on the podcast today. Did you know that it was International Stress Awareness Day? Well, I'm aware of my stress as the U.S. election results continue to trickle in. What is going to happen? And did you see this coming? Plus, the Ford government changes the way that we're dealing with COVID-19 and restrictions. A sharp critic of the government's response explains why this will lead to worse outcomes. Let's get to it. How are you feeling? How's the gut? Are you a little discombobulated? Maybe feeling a little bit of a stress at all after ingesting hours and hours of U.S. political coverage of the election? And let's just check the calendar. What day is it today? Oh, it's the first Wednesday of November. Did you know this? It's International Stress Awareness Day. I am aware of my stress. I am 100% aware. Did you see it coming? Did you predict it? Because I tell you what, the polls, once again, not accurate in the U.S. election. And I know that the pollsters want desperately for you to believe that back in 2016, no, no, they didn't get it wrong. You just misunderstood what they were saying. And here we are again in 2020, going into last night, poll after poll saying that although Donald Trump had, yes, a path to victory, Joe Biden was leading beyond, beyond what Hillary Clinton was leading by, was leading beyond the margin of error. And yet here we are. Did you see it coming? Did you call it? 416-870-6400, your calls. Did you think it was going to unfold this way? Where do we go now? Right now, Joe Biden is leading as votes are counted in Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin. He's moved ahead in Michigan. If Biden holds all of those four states, that gives him 270, exactly, on the money. 270. That's what he needs to win. So he doesn't actually have to have Georgia or Pennsylvania. That would just be gravy. It would be nice to have, not need to have, provided he can hold Nevada, Arizona, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And in Georgia and Pennsylvania, Trump is leading. Donald Trump on Twitter this morning, writing, they are finding Biden votes all over the place in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. So bad for our country. Okay, well, the votes are not actually just kind of blown in the wind. They're not in culverts. These are actual votes that have been already cast. And we know that the president has called into question mail-in voting. This is what else the uh, president tweeted this morning. Last night I was leading, often solidly in many key states, in almost all instances, Democrat-run and controlled. Then one by one, they started to magically disappear as surprise ballot dumps were counted. Very strange. The pollsters got it completely and historically wrong. Well, the pollster part is right there. I don't know. Surprise ballot dumps. Oh, man. I just stepped in a ballot dump. Oh, God. I got ballot dump all over my shoe. Gross. Here is the president this morning doing exactly, exactly what many people feared would happen. 
This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We did win this election. So our goal now is to ensure the integrity for the good of this nation. This is a very big moment. This is a major fraud in our nation. We want the law to be used in a proper manner. So we'll be going to the U.S. Supreme Court. We want all voting to stop. We don't want them to find any ballots at 4 o'clock in the morning and add them to the list, okay? It's, it's a very sad, it's a very sad moment. To me, this is a very sad moment. And we will win this. And we, as far as I'm concerned, we already have won That is Donald Trump early this morning. As far as I am concerned, we already have won. And going into yesterday, many pundits worried that this was precisely the play that the president would make. There, you know, there was a counter-narrative saying, well, you know, perhaps we'll actually have a result that is just so wildly one way or the other that we won't have a, you know, a hung election like we have right now. But that's not what happened. What happened is precisely the worst-case scenario for a lot of people, which is it's too close to call, and Donald Trump is now saying, stop counting the ballots. We're going to get the Supreme Court involved. Dr. Mark Rahm is a professor of ethics and American government at the McCourt School of Public Policy at Georgetown University, he says, you know what, guess what, that's not the way it works. Sometimes when you know things are going to happen, you're still shocked uh, and amazed when it does. Uh, He can't do that. Uh, The states will count the votes. The votes are going to be counted accurately. Presidential elections have never been decided on election night. The TV stations may have called them on election night, but the elections are decided when each state certifies its final vote tally. And that often takes days, if not weeks. But the states want to get it right. The American people want it to be done correctly. So deep breath, lie down, close your eyes, relax your muscles, and be prepared to wait a week or two for the final results. Be prepared to wait. Let's get to the line, Jason, line one. You see this coming, Jason? You call this better than the pollsters did? No, I didn't call it, but I had that sick feeling in my stomach um, that this was going to happen, and it's just a painful indictment on a country that is just so radically divided. But, you know, Alan, you played his statement from last night, and if you take his same statement and you change the words, this is to I am, it really seems quite appropriate, and he was actually bang on. This is not a fraud. He is a fraud. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate your call. Let's get to line two. And Frank, Frank, you think this is the play, as many people has had predicted, this was the play for Trump all along. Yes, I do. Uh, and, and I think it's quite clear. And, and Trump seems to be speaking in, in contradictory and uh, hypocritical terms. Just today, uh, in the states, as you know, the states of Nevada and the state uh, of Arizona, He's made claims, his team has made claims, they don't want the, the vote 
uh, counting to stop because those are key states at this point, given what's going on in the upper north northeastern states. So he's he's actually contradicting himself. Why it, it, it's 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 fit for him to get the Supreme Court involved to stop the counting in these other states where the, where there are close calls and where Biden is now leading. But on the other hand, it's okay for him to to come forward and say, let's continue the votes in Nevada. Let's continue yeah, the votes it, in Arizona. Right. Of course, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Doesn't doesn't line up logically. But we're kind of used to that with the U.S. president. Thanks, Frank. Appreciate that. Just a couple of people weighing in there. A couple of callers weighing in. Let us know. Did you see it coming? Are you surprised at all where we are? There is some consensus building online, and I caution you, it is early going yet. But you heard in our newscast about the timeline expected for votes to be completed in a number of states. And if the leads hold, or if Biden is able to gain on some of them, it is possible that we might have something conclusive a little faster than the worst-case scenario, which is, you know, some people saying it's going to be a week or more. That doesn't mean that Donald Trump will not contest, and it doesn't mean that he won't try and hold on. All of it, you know, raises the whole thing about polling again as I come back to it. And are we just at a point now where we can just say pollsters don't know what they're talking about or that polling isn't really an accurate science? Hey, speaking of science, have I mentioned Charles McVitie yet? Oh, you knew I was going to get around to science and Charles McVitie. I want to bring you up to date because I got a bit of an update here on Charles McVitie. I promise I'm going to get back to the U.S. election. I know there are a lot of eyes on that. But the Charles McVitie affair continues to rock the provincial government. I'll bring you up to speed. Charles McVitie is a Christian evangelical leader, has been described as a homophobe, Islamophobe. He's certainly an intolerant, I think you can put that label on, Mr. McVitie. Certainly others have. Uh, He runs the Canada Christian College in Oshawa, and the provincial government has recently introduced a pandemic response bill. It's an omnibus bill, touches on a whole bunch of things, and right in there is legislation that would allow Canada Christian College to grant degrees, and one of the degrees it would be able to grant is in science. You would be able to get a degree in science from Canada Christian College If this all goes through, now the government says it's an independent process and there's an independent body trying to figure out whether or not this school should be able to grant degrees and they're not going to proclaim the legislation uh, into law. This bill is not going to become law until that independent process is complete. The question continues to be, well, then what's it doing in there? All right. Now, here's what I want to play for you. Would you, would you, go to get a degree in science from a man who would say this kind of thing. Here's Charles McVitie. People talk about the world being billions and billions of years old, but I've never seen anything more than 6,000 years old. You have, a, you have a perfect historical record for about 6,000 years and then stop. In fact, the Jews say it's the year 5,778. I don't know how accurate that is, but it sounds pretty good to me. This nonsense that 
this world has been like this for billions of years is really troublesome to me in my mind because it makes no sense at all. That is Charles McVitie in a video released by the Ontario NDP today. Charles McVitie believes that the world is 6,000 years old. And the Ontario government thinks that his school should be able to give you a degree in science. Science. We are keeping our eye on the situation south of the border as more of those votes come in. We'll keep you updated. Anything happens whatsoever, I will keep you informed. But let's get to the numbers, shall we? The COVID numbers in the province today, 987. We continue to hover around that 1,000 cases a day mark. Uh, Sadly, we were reporting 16 more deaths today. The testing numbers, 28,500. They continue to be far lower, far below the capacity that we have in the province. And that pending number, again, is creeping back up at 33,000. Hospitalizations up by 10 today. ICUs up by 2. One of the sharpest critics of the Ford government's response for co- from for, to pardon me COVID nineteen pardon me has been Dr. Michael Warner of Michael Guerin Hospital, and he put out a tweet yesterday that has been widely quoted, and so much so that it was actually read today in the House during question period by Andrea Horvath. It creates the preconditions for rolling lockdowns continued economic uncertainty, and unnecessary deaths and illness. That is Andrea Horvath, in question period today, reading a tweet by Dr. Michael Warner, reacting to a new restriction guidelines released by the Ford government. Dr. Warner joins me on the phone. Dr. Warner, why did you write that tweet? Uh, Well, I was... You know, I was reviewing the um, the publication put out by the government, and that's how I feel. I actually didn't know it was read in the House today, but you know, this this framework is an economic framework to enable the reopening that the premier wants to have happen. It's not a healthcare framework. It doesn't make any scientific sense. In fact, it doesn't make any logical sense based on the statistics that you read out at the beginning of the segment. Things are getting worse. So why would we, would we move our hotspot regions to a less restrictive state when things are already out of control? The counter-argument to that would be that the recent information about where infection is occurring indicates that infection is not occurring in restaurants, in restaurant dining, or in gyms, and that therefore to uh, restrict those businesses from opening and operating when that's not the source of transmission makes no sense. Well, I think the government did themselves a disservice when they presented those pie graphs that I think you're referring to, because as we know, you know, 50% of cases have no epidemiological link. We don't know where they come from. And those numbers referred solely to outbreaks, which are not the majority of cases. So that data is not consistent with the conclusion that some people have drawn. Uh, We do know that um, when you take your mask off and you're across the table from someone who you don't live with to eat, or if you're at a bar drinking alcohol uh, with a number of people, you're sharing the same air, and that's how COVID-19 spreads. It's, It's very straightforward. I, I guess I would take away from this then that you are strongly opposed to the relaxing of restrictions in all areas except for Toronto as of this weekend and the following weekend is when Toronto will be able to have in-restaurant dining and gyms open again. Well, I think the metrics that have been laid out in this framework 
um, are really a, a recipe for exponential spread. I mean, the, the percent positivity that they're looking at to be in the current state that we are now is greater than 10%. I mean, that's outrageous. If there's an epidemiologist who feels that that makes sense, I'd love to hear from them because, you know, we're at 4.1% yesterday, I believe, and, and that is leading to, you know, a seven-day average uh, case number uh, growth increase, increased hospitalizations, the 16 deaths today, uh, winter's coming, flu shots haven't been administered appropriately. I mean, I, it's very clear what's coming, and the, the thought that you can corral a biological problem with an economic framework has not been proven in any, in any other jurisdiction as successful. We can learn from other countries. We can see what's happening in Europe. And it's not quite clear to me why we aren't uh, taking the necessary steps to get ahead of this. In a situation where public health really is treading water right now, we're not contact tracing in Toronto. I mean, that's a fundamental piece of this. If there was a public health counterbalance to the economic measures that Premier Ford wants to introduce to loosen things up, then, then I'd be a little more understanding. But public health uh, does not have the resources to keep us safe right now. They need time to catch up. Can we talk about the communication in terms of the various no now no longer stages? You know, we've sort of gotten used to saying things like stage two, stage three, then back to modified stage two. That is all gone now for a color-coded system that previously the Premier had said well, that would be too complicated. He didn't want to do the Quebec model. Now we have it, and I, I was really interested to watch that press conference yesterday, Doctor, and I don't, I didn't hear a single health official or the Premier refer to anything by its actual color code. Well, um, I mean, communication has been a challenge from the beginning of our government's pandemic response, and there's definitely a time to improve that. Uh, and, and I don't mean having different messages about what to do, because the science does change, but just making it clear to, to Ontarians what they should do at this particular point in time, that's not been clear. But, you know, this is, to call this a framework, I think, is, is, is not necessarily the correct term. It's basically a license for the government to do what they want, because the fine print uh, allows them to make the final decision, no matter what thresholds are met, no matter what category of measures we're in at that time. It's actually the government who makes the decisions out, not public health officials. And it's unclear whether all you know, components of each um, threshold needs to be met to move up or down the scale. At the end of the day, Premier Ford gets to make the decision, and this framework allows him to do that. I think that was my takeaway from it, is, is that it is very vague. It is not specific at all in terms of, for example, you know, like Toronto is, I believe we're orange right now. Nobody's in red. We're in orange. We might go back to yellow in a week's time. But the criteria to move a area from one color code to the other is very secretive, and it all is based on a recommendation from the medical officer of health. But we're not clear whether or not the premier needs to take that. Well, see, I mean, even you and I are a little bit confused because I would argue that we're closer to red right now and he wants to move us to orange uh, by November 14th uh, because right now indoor dining is not allowed and bars are not open, whereas that would be allowed in the orange um, segment. But to get back to red where we are now, things would have to be so far out of control with the positivity rate greater than 10% that I don't even want to imagine that situation. So basically, uh, the restrictions that we're in right now is a situation that we may never see again unless we are on the verge of lockdown. But again, Alan, it doesn't actually indicate how we pivot from the control or red zone to lockdown. There's actually no specific criteria that indicate how that decision is made. 
Where are we going from here in terms of testing? I just want to talk to you about that testing number. I keep asking about it because here we are, 28.5 today is our testing. We consistently are below 30,000. We were told we should be at 50,000. And and the the word from health officials is that this is, a lot of this is to do with the new testing regimen in terms of appointments, and they wanted to eliminate, you know, those big lineups out of assessment, in front of assessment centers. But do we need to, again, change our criteria for how we do testing to get that testing number back up? Well, the things you don't want to see, you don't want to see testing numbers going down and percent positivity going up, which is what we're seeing. So whether it's 50,000, 100,000, or 28,000, that doesn't matter as much to me as whether the people who need to get tested are getting tested. And what they've done is they've taken the lineup that was outside the hospitals and they've hidden it. Um, to the internet. You know, that's where you have to sign up to get an, a, a test. And what isn't happening is, is easily accessible testing to marginalized, racialized individuals. Some communities, including my hospital, which has seven pop-up assessment centers, are doing that. But that's where we need to be. We need to be in the hotspots. And, and, you know, where the percent positivity is actually greater than 10%. That's where our resources need to be deployed. We need to be testing as many people as possible in a way that's convenient for them and then turning those tests around quickly and then subsequently contact tracing those individuals, providing them with support to isolate. It's very simple. That's what we need to do. What we don't need to do is open up bars and restaurants to make it more likely those same marginalized individuals are going to get sick and die. Dr. Warner, always great to have you on the program. Thank you again for your perspective. Thank you. Take care. That is Dr. Michael Warner, who is the Medical Director of Critical Care at Michael Guerin Hospital. Keeping you up to date on the situation south of the border, the Trump campaign has just put out a statement saying it wants a recount in Wisconsin. This as the ballots continue to be counted in a number of contested states. Uh, In terms of what's happening here in Canada, the Canadian government is just saying nothing, and with good reason. Here's David Aiken, our senior political correspondent. Normally, the Prime Minister of Canada would send congratulations to a new president, but the protocol here really is there's going to be no official comment from Justin Trudeau until there's a concession speech. That's really when it will happen. Obviously, we saw one of the, one guy falsely claim he won. That's Trump. Until there's a concession speech, that's when you'll see that happen. Otherwise, Trudeau doesn't want to talk about it. That is David Aiken, and this morning the cameras were rolling as Justin Trudeau pulled up to the West Block. Here's what he had to say. As everyone knows, there is uh, an electoral process underway in the United States. We are, of course, following it carefully, and will continue to as uh, the day and days uh, unfold. That is Justin Trudeau this morning heading into the West Block, saying precisely what David Aiken predicted he would say, which is nothing. Now, during these sort of elections, occasionally you'll you'll see this in terms of the news. You'll see, oh my goodness, the number of Google searches from Americans about how to move to Canada immediately has skyrocketed, and that'll make it into news. I would caution you that that doesn't really ever turn into anything other than a bit of a blip. But I did notice this from Edward Keenan, uh, the Toronto Star reporter and occasional contributor to this program, Edward Keenan, who is in Washington, D.C., covering the U.S. election for the Toronto Star, who says... Quote, I was propositioned by a drunk woman in downtown D.C. last night wanting to marry her way into Canadian citizenship. So heads up, Canadian journalists working south of the border. <laughs> so that's going on. 
Lisa Kirby is the president and CEO of Blackbird Strategies and has been watching the U.S. election results with all the rest of us. Uh, how's your stress level, Lisa? Well, Alan, I hope you didn't hear me giggling about the marriage proposal because I suspect that, that those may be happening more and more. Uh, but, yeah, I was um, anxiety eating last night, and I'm not sure if that's changed at all today. It's unfortunate that Halloween was so close to the presidential election. Isn't that true? Last night I said to my wife, why is it that we don't have any more of those fun-sized chocolate bars? I need to stress eat about 50 of them right now. Yeah, I went through the same, and then I pulled out nachos. (laughs) All right, uh, your reaction uh, to what Trump had to say at 2 o'clock this morning? Uh, I don't think anyone should be surprised by that. He's been setting this up for weeks now. For weeks, he's been laying a foundation for what his response would be if we were in the situation we now actually find ourselves in. Uh, so none of that's a surprise. You know, he's been lying to to Americans for four years. So why is anyone surprised that he would say that he won the election in the middle of the night? You know, it's it's literally literally crazy. You know, the fact that he's also tweeting and fundraising on claims that the Democrats and the quote unquote fake news are trying to steal this election. Nothing like that is happening whatsoever. Counting ballots is not stealing an election. It's putting democracy to work. I think that the big concern, and we heard this from some of our callers, is the the concern is where does this rhetoric take us, especially in a situation where we see now that we may not have a decisive result for it may be more than a week. Absolutely. I think the longer this goes on, the more danger there is of that, right? The longer that this goes on, the more opportunities that Trump and his surrogates have to kind of sow these seeds, not just of division, but of distrust of the the system. You know, like there was, you know, Philadelphia is a state in play, of course, and there's been so much back and forth about what's happening in Philadelphia and whether or not, you know, the Dems are stealing an election. But what's interesting is that Philadelphia has put up a live stream showing election workers counting the ballots. Like, this is where we're at. You know, all these states who are trying to get results counted and ultimately certified are having to do this in this, you know, this this vacuum of a president who's who's likely to lose this election, um, lying to the American people about what's happening. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's really heartbreaking. What's your takeaway from the whole polling situation? Yeah, I, I, I've been talking all week about, you know, the sort of PTSD that pollsters and, and especially Democratic supporters have had in the wake of 2016. And we were told, oh, no, the polls didn't get it wrong in 2016. We just, you know, the lay people, we misinterpreted the polling information. I think now we have confirmation that the pollsters really don't know what is going on on the ground. Well, that, that's certainly true. You know, we... You know, I'd been hearing different things from different pollsters, depending upon which side of the aisle they kind of, you know, lay lay their head at night. And you had people saying that this is going to be a Trump victory. You had people saying that the Democratic 
Democrats are, are going to take this in a landslide. And honestly, I didn't make any predictions because I was very concerned. In 2016, I volunteered in several states for the Hillary Clinton campaign. And you know, in the days leading up to E-Day of 2016, I, I, I was concerned that what happened was going to happen. And here we are again, except Americans have gone through four years of, you know, lying and, you know, bullying and this terrible human who's president is on the verge of potentially being reelected. And I saw a tweet earlier today, you know, 54 percent of white women, which is an increase over 2016, voted again for Trump. And I am absolutely at a loss as to how people can can vote for him again after everything that's happened. But at the end of the day, I think you're completely right. Pollsters are wrong. They're clearly not hitting the demographics that they need to be speaking to to get accurate feedback. And I'm not quite sure why that is. I'm very happy not to be in that business. But there, there's a lot happening right now, and people are understandably confused. If it turns out... If it turns out that Trump wins this election, I think there are a lot of people that will look at Joe Biden and say, why did you repeat the same hubris, the same mistakes that Clinton did in in the dying days of this campaign, instead of focusing squarely on the swing states? Where did we see, where did we see Biden and Harris campaigning? South Carolina, Texas. Places that really they were overreaching. Should they? Should the Democrats have not just said, "No, no, this is the only thing we're doing is concentrating on these swing states"? Well, there's certainly some you know, some some truth to that in terms of where maybe they should have focused. But of course, we're also in the middle of a global pandemic, so everything was new this time. How how campaigning works was new. But let me just point this out: Joe Biden has received. At this point, before all the ballots have been counted, at this point in time right now, he has received more votes for president than any other candidate in history. So, you know, while people are arguing perhaps Democrats didn't have a really good strategy, you know, the reality is more people have voted voted for Joe Biden to become president than for anyone else ever. More yeah, but Lisa, you know perfectly well that that's not how you elect a president. You you know, you get to go home with a trophy that says I won the popular vote, but that doesn't get you to be president. Uh, clearly, and that's a conversation for an entirely for another time if we're <laughs> going to have a conversation about the electoral college. Um, but it you know, and and it it works the same way here too in Canada. We currently have a government that is not uh, not not the winner of the popular vote, but it's how things play out in terms of where the votes come from across the country. Uh, but yes, there's definitely going to be a postmortem done. Ultimately, I at this point, I think I'm somewhat comfortable in saying that I think that Biden will eke out a win here. Um, but I don't think that that's going to be uh, the end of all of this. I think the, the United States has a lot of work to do, and there's going to be um, there's going to be some some stuff coming out of the United States that 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 are going to make many of us uncomfortable. And I, I worry for my friends and uh, and others who, who are south of our border. 
Uh, absolutely. Lisa Kirby is the president and CEO of Blackbird Strategies. Always great to talk with you, Lisa. Uh, I hope that you are managing your stress on this International Stress Awareness Day. I don't know if you knew that. It is International Stress Awareness Day. Please be aware of your stress. Well, thank you. And isn't that ironic? <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> I just uh, reiterate with the breaking news that I started this segment with the Trump campaign. Uh, is now requesting a recount in Wisconsin. Trump won Wisconsin in 2016 by 23,000 votes. He currently trails by 21,000 votes in 2020. The Trump campaign team, again, requesting a recount in Wisconsin. And all of that, of course, is just going to sort of delay any kind of final tally. So it just pushes it further off into the distance before we are going to be able to say one way or another exactly who won. And as you heard from the president, 2 o'clock this morning, he believes he already has won. That is the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch The Alan Carter Show weekdays beginning at noon.